for tuning in to Image Method. This is a show about making moving images, and this is also an enhanced podcast. We have pictures in this podcast, and they can be seen as album artwork in iTunes, or you can play the downloaded file as a QuickTime. You can also see the images on our blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. All the show notes, uh, links, images, and contact information can be found at imagemethod.blogspot.com. Today's topic is color. Color is not real. It changes, fluctuates. It's transitory by its very nature. Color is poetry. Whatever that means, such are the words of Stephen Bleicher. He teaches art at Carolina Coastal University in South Carolina. He is the author of the book called Contemporary Color, Theory and Use, and he is our guest today. Stephen Bleicher, thank you for being a guest on Image Method Podcast. Thank you for having me. So what's the big deal with color? Colors are very important because color has the unique property in that we react subconsciously to the colors we see so that even before you've made a cognitive thought about what you're seeing, you're responding subconsciously to the colors that you see. So it really does have a great power, and it's one of the things that artists, photographers, and filmmakers really need to think about a little bit more than many times they have been. Color is kind of sometimes relegated to a secondary thought. Like, what's an example of some of these effects you're talking about? Well, there are all kinds of different effects. Again, we recognize the color and start to take that in internally before we start to recognize the shape of the product. One of the classic examples is the stop sign. The stop sign is red. If we change the color of the stop sign to green, people will just go right through it. And if you stop them afterward, and we've done this as controlled uh, experiments on college campuses, if we pull them over after they've gone through the sign and we ask them why they're being pulled over, every one of them that we've pulled over said, yes, I went through the stop sign. And when we said, well, why did you do that? And they said, well, it was green. So that green subconscious, we've been taught since we were little children, green means go, red means stop. And so we don't look at the words, we don't look at the shape of the sign. What we're doing Mm -hmm. is we're responding to the color of the sign. Well, would that mean then, this sort of uh, innate kind of subconscious Mm -hmm. response, does that mean that we'll always be stuck with color cliches like uh, the bad guy will be in black and the sexy woman will be in red? Well, some of that we have to think about what is an innate response, what is an inherited response, and what is a learned response or a cultural response to color. So black being the bad guy is a cultural response in the West to the color uh, to black um, mm-hmm. things like the sexiness of red may go back more to our biological instincts of red and we we take that into humans and animals that that tends to have a more stimulating effect now certain things will affect us another inherent color combination is yellow and black Uh, Yellow and black would be the color of all of our road warning signs, police Mm -hmm. caution tape. But if we think about it in nature, it's the color of bees. It's the color of yellow jackets and wasps. So that Mm -hmm. there is this innate response of yellow and black means danger. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we take something like pink and blue, 
Blue for right. boys, pink for girls. That is really a culturally learned response. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me, so if we're talking about color and trying to communicate with other people mm-hmm. about the colors we want to use or just describe, how do we really classify colors or describe colors when we're into a design mode? Do I have to learn all those, all that color theory that goes throughout history of several hundred years to understand color? I think it's helpful at times and rather interesting. A lot of it, I think we tend to pick up culturally through school and everything else. And I think some of the standard things like complements, colors that are opposite each other on the color wheel, we, we start to know of kind of naturally, and those would be red and green, the Christmas colors, they're complements, they're opposite each other, mm-hmm. they work off each other and then heighten and intensify each other, violet and yellow, blue and orange. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that we kind of pick up through our acculturation And probably one of the things that I really try to stress to design students when I work with them is learning warm and cool. I think warm and Mm -hmm. cool has more importance nowadays, both psychologically and visually, than some of the more traditional color theory that we we tend to spend a lot of time teaching. It's a very simple way to get into color, Mm -hmm. too. And you see it in, in, uh, it just seems to be the most common division of how it's used in a lot of the uh, commercials that you Mm -hmm. see or popular cultural movies. And also, I think the color temperature issue is, you know, the fact that the color temperature scale is basically a warm, cool scale and is so part of everything we see in photography Mm -hmm. and motion picture that it just naturally becomes a way to divide things up in a a warm, cool kind of way. And there are things that it does for you. Warm colors visually tend to advance and come toward you. Cool colors Mm -hmm. tend to recede on the picture. So you can make something stand out by placing it on a a warm object, say uh, an orange object, on a cooler colored background. Mm -hmm. And if you look at a lot of the early animated uh, Warner Brothers films, the the Bugs Bunny and all of those, if you look at, at what's going on with the colors, the backgrounds tend to be cool. The mm-hmm. main characters tend to be warm, and so that also helps give you a sense of depth and space. That's also related to how things just appear mm-hmm. in life, too. It's kind of like the atmospheric haze issue. Um, you know, that's just the way things look. Right. When we see, you know, with our eye out the window, you know, the sky, blue sky in the background. Mm-hmm. So do you think that effect is related to the fact that it's already a natural phenomenon that predates sort of humans? I mean, it is, and it's... Um partly a biological or physiological phenomenon as well in that as things recede in space, as we're looking at over a vista, they tend to gray out as they go back in space. Well, that's because there's mm-hmm. less light hitting those things in the background than there is in the foreground. So we're just right. kind of taking what's a very natural way of seeing our world and then incorporating it into our artwork, our design, our photography, or our film. Mm-hmm. We've seen this warm and cool technique in a way to divide your sort of color choice palette in that film, Pan's Labyrinth. Right. I think they had a, had a lot of that, and that, that seems to me a very clear example. And I wonder sometimes when I think about how they did that, basically the the fantasy world is mostly warm mm-hmm. and nice, and the adult evil world is is cool and and high contrast. Right. The, it the, seems to be a very fundamental division. The world of, of fascistic Spain is in cool colors, it's in desaturated colors, 
kind of dull grays, whereas the fantasy world is kind of saturated. It's really intense color as it goes. So it was a really a, a beautiful-looking uh, film, and the cinematographer mm -hmm. in an interview, Guillermo Navarro, was talking about the colors of the fantasy world mm -hmm. being almost womb-like, yeah, and that that was part of it, and, and uh, figured into a lot of the art direction with rounded shapes. There was one uh, trait. I think it was American cinematographer where uh, he mentioned that. Well, also, I think adding to that that whole womb-like feel is the idea that in most of the fantasy sequences, Ophelia is going into something. She's going underground. She's going mm -hmm. into a kind of a separate space. So it kind of pairs that up. Right. Yeah, it was a beautifully uh, beautifully crafted mm -hmm. film. Um, but they didn't actually use that color scheme dogmatically throughout the film. There was some warm scenes with the evil mm -hmm. stepfather um, and cool scenes with the fawn, uh, cool colored right. scenes, that is. So they didn't really slavishly, and I think that if it was too strict of a color scheme, it would have gotten a little obvious or something. Even though the kind of basic outline mm -hmm. is fairly obvious, the fact that they didn't always slavishly adhere to it, to me, makes it a little uh, much more complex. Yeah, it made it more complex, and I think it made it more believable in the long run. So mm -hmm. that I think too many times Hollywood tries to make one thing A and the next thing B. If you go back probably to the precursor of all of this, which is The Wizard of Oz, uh, mm. when Dorothy is in the real world in Kansas, everything is black and white and gray right. and bleak, and it's only in the kind of fantasy or dreamlike state of Oz that we have color. Right, right. As pertains to the emotional effects of color, mm. what happens to that in the viewer in, in the black and white experience and when they're watching a black and white movie? Well, in our mind, in, in many senses, we actually bring color to those black and white images. So it's really interesting. There are times when you can uh, have somebody sit down and watch a black and white movie and then ask them about, well, what color would this have been or that have been? And they can actually come up with colors. Hmm. Another film that was um, also very, uh, not black and white, but very monochromed mm -hmm. is uh, Children of Men. Mm -hmm. And I that that look uh, shot by Emmanuel Lubezki, um, it seems to be a lot of the reds were drained out of it and it had a real cyan kind of feel. And it, it occurred to me that in a sort of lifeless or a world-facing mm -hmm. kind of a lifeless uh, condition um, to remove the color red is, again, a simple and almost obvious uh, way to skew your colors. And I'm wondering, is there something more complex to, to color, or can you get by just with sort of simple paradigms like this? I think you can, and I think films like Children of Men use that well. There were a lot of cool greens and blues within that film. They, again, they did take out a lot of the warm colors, and there was a real limited color palette within the film, and that was a very intentional thing. Mm -hmm. One thing I thought was really interesting in your book was what you said about the color green, how it typically will make people feel comfortable, and that's why you often see mm -hmm. it in um, bed and breakfast, and I think hospitals commonly use green as well right. for that same purpose. The cameraman who shot Children of Men said in an interview that he liked the color green for that movie because it tended to make people uncomfortable. How do you explain something like that? Um, I think it depends where we see the, the green. I think if we saw it on somebody's face, that might tend to make us uneasy. Um, so I think it really has to be the location of mm -hmm. the color or what the color is on. 
I don't think we can generalize too much about any one color in particular because for every good association of a color, we can probably sit down and think of a negative association as well. In your book, you have these excellent diagrams that show how color harmony can be mapped on a color wheel. And I really like these diagrams because they show these elegant, simple relationships um, that start at the color wheel. And these diagrams, by the way, I should remind our listeners, are available on our blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com, as well as album artwork and iTunes. And uh, they are also available in uh, Stephen Bleicher's book. We can't get too deeply into it right now, but why don't you go over some of the basics with us? For example, can you explain what is a color wheel? A color wheel literally is probably the easiest way to explain color so that things move in line, almost um, like taking the rainbow and uh, bending mm-hmm. it around, taking... But but the color wheels, if we start with the, the three primaries and then just split mm-hmm. them and then split those, isn't that the yeah. simple construction? Yeah, we get the... Uh, we go from the primaries to the secondary colors, which are green and orange and, then and six violet. Colors. Then down to the tertiary colors, the red oranges and the red violets and the blue violets and the blue greens. So it's an easy way to start to see it. And then one of the other things we can use the color wheel for is colors that are exactly opposite each other Mm -hmm. on the color wheel are complements, things like yellow and violet, red and green, Mm -hmm. blue and orange. And those immediately work off each other and heighten the color of the two when they're used together so that something like one of Sa- uh, Sandy Scoglin's pieces uh, with, I think it's called Goldfish, with uh, the blue room and the, f- and the various uh, orange and yes. red-orange goldfish, one of the reasons that they stand out as intensely as they do, one is, is some of her lighting, which is really uh, nice and dramatic, But to the blue reacting with the orange, the two intensify each other and make it even brighter so that if you kind of counter that to another one of her pieces, which is Cats in Paris, which is probably one everybody knows of, it's an entirely almost blue scene of a rooftop with these kind of almost lime green cats. And there she's working in something called an analogous color scheme, which are colors that are next to each other on the color wheel. So that a lot of times artists and designers and photographers and filmmakers are planning things out and using these things without even being as consciously as aware of it. So they're things that can be done to help ensure that the colors work together Mm -hmm. or harmonize. So you talk about the kind of a triadic shape. You talked about working with complements, mm-hmm. and you talked about the what, – what is it when you use colors that are adjacent? What colors do you call that? Colors that are next to each other are analogous colors. Analogous. analogous so any yes. three colors that would be next to each other on the color wheel, it could be um, yellow, yellow, orange, and orange, mm-hmm. or uh, green, blue, green, and blue. All of those will work together. You know, it seems to me that a lot of the color effectiveness comes from a different kind of classification of color I think of sometimes, which is 
how normal does it look? Mm-hmm. In Sandy Skoglund's work, um, you know, the way she shows an interior room, but the mm-hmm. color is so not normal is right. what makes it completely striking, too. So the kind of relationship that mm-hmm. your use of color has to reality, right. I think, is a very right. significant element. And somebody like Martin Parr tends to use it where he'll have a very normal Uh, looking background, and there'll be one or two items that have a real intense saturated color to them, and he's doing that to kind of visually isolate them, so your eye is kind of drawn to them. But, you know, looking at Martin Parr's work, earlier we were talking about color harmony. It Mm -hmm. seems to me that what Martin Parr is doing in a lot of his work is not giving a care about color harmony at all, or rather deliberately using the disharmony. I'm looking at that picture of the woman eating a sandwich with this purple, you know, very like three different shades of purple in that kind of image, and um, the blue fingernails. It just seems like, like, how would you define color disharmony? It seems uh, like he really has a good grasp of it in, these kind, in, in his work. But and if I'm we look at uh, the image you're talking about with the woman eating the sandwich, and we look at the blue in her nails, it's a very intense, almost an abnormal blue if we take a look mm-hmm. at the rest of the image and the softness of the colors in her blouses, the desaturated color there. Mm-hmm. Um, the more saturated colors are in the front. It's her nails and the wrapper with the Disney characters on right. it. I think there's a little flash going is what's happening, and that, that yeah. little bit of extra light's giving a, that foreground a, a nice mm-hmm. punch and some saturation there. How about the picture of the, um, it looks like a Mexican condiment yeah. spread? I mean, the way the reds and the greens are working there, it's very limited, but again, it seems just seems like things are disharmoniously close in their hue or they're not matched in their level. Maybe this would be a good time, actually, to, to review with me the... Mm-hmm hue, lightness, saturation kind of uh, breakdown. Okay. Well, part of it in terms of saturation, again, saturation is the brightness or intensity of the color. Mm -hmm. And the more light there is, the more intense or saturated the color will be. Uh, Desaturated colors are colors that have been kind of washed out or grayed out. They're very dull. And some of it's interesting in that picture that you mentioned uh, we've got some limes and some kind of a green sauce in a bowl uh, against, again, a red background. So he's using this idea of complements of colors that are opposite each other on the color wheel so that they intensify each other. And then there's a, a kind of a plastic shaker or salt shaker mm-hmm. with a really intense green on it. And the green must become so bright against like, that red background that it's almost hard to look at. It's fluorescent. But but what about the idea that these are just so close? Like, what really makes a clash color? Like, I know that when I was younger, mm-hmm. my uh, sister would say that clash is that tie and that shirt, and I uh, didn't exactly know what she was talking about. How can you describe the phenomenon of when colors, quote-unquote, clash? Well, when they're opposite each other on the color wheel, um, what happens is it's a- that clashing is actually a physiologic effect within the eye so that if we go into the retina, there are rods and cones. The rods are sensitive to light, light and dark, and the cones actually pick up color. And the cones, there is a chemical in them which fires off as you start to see certain colors. 
And so what's happening is things are firing off at such a fast rate that that intensity, that color, appears actually brighter than it is when you match red and green together. Mm-hmm. The other way to, to also make that work is they have to be close in value so that the green and the red need to be in similar value. And value, we're talking about light and dark. A dark mm-hmm. value of red would be maroon or a wine color. Mm-hmm. A light value or a tint of red would be something like pink. They're <laughs> all red. They're just different values of red. Right, right. So um, how would you describe the various shades of green in the uh, Mexican condiment picture? It, it, the lime is just too pale as a color to go with the kind of guacamole juice. Yeah. It, and then the other green, you know, if they're all greens, is just just way too high value and too high in saturation so that doesn't match? It, it, the green of the, the salt shake or whatever it is mm-hmm. is so saturated and it's of equal value to the red that it's placed up against that mm-hmm. the intensity of the green seems to be even brighter than it probably physically is. That's an effect in the viewer's eye. Mm-hmm. Right. There are some really ugly uses of color here, and mm-hmm. I, I just wonder, what do you think about the use of color disharmony or uh, icky, is it, or what, you, what would you call it, um, garish? Yeah, that, that garish, super saturated, intense color is really kind of a, a postmodern use of color, and it's really meant to kind of shock and wake the viewer up. So that we're so used to being bombarded visually with so many images in a, in a day that we've got to do something that is extraordinary in order to catch the viewer's attention. Do you think that it's possible to learn too much about color, that you can learn so much and gain so much knowledge about color and how they work and how to make perfect color harmony whenever you wanted it, that it could somehow be possible to kind of lose a sort of instinctive reaction to how you might want to use color? Does that, that, that make any um, sense? I, I think it does. I'm, I think you could over-intellectualize things a bit, and I think that sometimes does happen. I think if you think about some of the basic uh, rules for using color and uh, stick with them, it's fairly hard to go wrong. Uh, I think if you try to over-intellectualize things and kind of keep pushing it, uh, then sometimes that can blow up in your face. But Well, we're trying to prevent that sort of blow-up-in-face problem, and I think your book really helps us to do that. And you know what I really love best about your book, Contemporary Color, Theory and Use, is that despite its sort of egghead title, it's got uh, a lot of great images and tons of great information, and yet it's a very svelte 160 pages, which I just mm-hmm. think is a really nice... Uh, well, we wanted to make a very visual book. We also didn't want to write it in the way that most books have been written. I wanted it more in um, a voice as if I was talking to the viewer. The idea was that we could include all of the scholarly information, but have it written on a very friendly, uh, very inviting level. And that was part of our approach. Well, you completely succeeded. It's a very friendly book, Contemporary Color, Theory and Use, Stephen Bleicher. I want to thank you again for talking with me today on Image Method Podcast. Thank you very much.
Stephen Bleicher is an artist who teaches art at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. We'll have links to his book on our blog at imagemethod.blogspot.com. I'm going to close this show with a new feature we're starting called the Teeny Tiny Trick of the Trade. And this teeny tiny trick of the trade is a small tip for acquiring a swatch book reference for color. And what I am recommending is that you go to the paint section of your larger hardware stores and grab one of every sample paint chip uh, from the display. Maybe you can go with every other one. It doesn't really matter. It's up to you. But these are free and it allows you to have conversations about color with other people while having a handy visual and systematic reference to which you can refer. If you have a teeny tiny trick of the trade and you'd like to share that with our listeners, email us at imagemethod at gmail.com or you can leave a voicemail at 206-350-3652. If you like the show, be sure and tell your friends and also be sure to subscribe via iTunes or whatever you use. This is an enhanced podcast, so the images become album artwork in iTunes, or you can play the downloaded file um, in QuickTime as well. As usual, the show notes, images, and links can be found on the Image Method blog, imagemethod.blogspot.com. Thank you for all the positive feedback we've been getting. I'm TW, and thanks for tuning in to Image Method.